Friends, let me now invite you to turn with me in your copy of the Scriptures to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And as you're turning there, I want to make two remarks. One, I want to remind you that Paul's aim in this letter is that the Corinthians would fix their eyes on the message of the cross, that message which is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to believers who are being saved, it is the power of God. Our sanctification is by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. While Paul addresses specific issues at Corinth, his goal for these believers is that they would put on the mind of Christ in order to think and to act Christianly for the glory of God. And this is what we should do as well. This is why we sit under the preaching of God's Word week after week to have our minds shaped and formed by God's truth so that we might discern what is glorifying to God. And two, the text for our sermon today is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 to 5, not 1 to 9, 1 to 5. And it is titled, Marriage, Sex, and the Glory of God. So you can go ahead and make those corrections in your bulletins. This is a shorter passage than what I had planned earlier but I believe this will help us focus better on the text at hand. We've also provided you with an outline today, since I have quite a few things to say, as you can see in that outline. And so this is to help you uh, follow along so that you won't get lost. So please look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 to 5. Listen carefully now to the Word of God. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except, perhaps, by agreement, for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that we belong to you. You have opened our ears to hear the voice of our Good Shepherd, and you have given us new hearts to follow him. Lord, would you grant and guard our hearts so that no one would take us captive by cultural wisdom, or empty deceit, or even human tradition. May we hear the voice of our Savior who speaks to us from heaven. May we trust in the wisdom of the cross. May we submit to Him who is the head of all rule and authority and glorify You with our bodies. Teach us to walk in love just as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us. Be glorified in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Quite a few Saudi men have recently become very nervous about using their government's COVID-19 tracing app. But not for the reasons you might suspect. In an article titled, Saudi COVID-19 app exposes cheating husbands, the Gulf News reported that some wives, while looking through their husbands' phones, stumbled upon certain business trips that their husbands had concealed from them. But not every discovery of infidelity led to divorce. 
One Saudi housewife explained that even though her trust was shaken, she did not want to escalate the problem so as to destabilize the home. Different cultures handle sexual immorality differently, don't they? Some simply expect it. There are some cultures where women accept that their husbands will be unfaithful, but they're still willing to stay with them, provided they return home, provided their children are recognized as legal heirs, and provided they are taken care of. In other cultures, sexual immorality is seen as the answer to a loveless, sexless marriage. Now, in a fallen world, this should not be surprising to us as sexual immorality appears in many shapes and colors. These responses are a result of a world that has abandoned God's good and holy design for sexuality and has turned to their own wisdom. Now, it was no different in Corinth. It was not uncommon in that society for men to view marriage and sex with their wives as necessary for procreation, for having children and bearing legal heirs. However, recreational sex, sex for pleasure, was sought outside the home. And it was well known that married men would have sex with prostitutes and their concubines and even their slaves. Sex was seen as a basic need like hunger, and it didn't matter where you satisfied your sexual appetite as long as you were able to maintain a respectable position in the community with a wife and, and children. So make no mistake, sexual immorality was rampant in Corinthian society, and some of it began infiltrating the church. Instead of continuing to trust in the wisdom of God as revealed in the gospel, some of the members of the church in Corinth began to look to the wisdom of their culture. Some of them had embraced a low view of the body, an unbiblical view. They thought that since their spirits were saved, what they did with their bodies didn't matter. Some, as we will see when we get to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12, did not even believe that the body would be resurrected, while others thought well, marriage is an institution that belongs to this age. In the age to come, we will neither marry or be given in marriage, but will be like the angels, and that's where we are all heading. So let's try and get out of our marriages. And Paul says to them in this letter, he says, no, remain as you are. Others thought that if sex between husband and wife is meant to be a pointer, to our spiritual union that we have in Christ, that is a reality that we now enjoy in the Spirit, if that's the case, well, we can dispense with sex and marriage. If you're really spiritual, then you don't need sex in your marriage. Now, given the fact that many of the members at this church were steeped in sexual sin before they came to Christ, you can see how such a proposal of abstinence would have been attractive to some. And so they wrote to Paul asking him about these things. And Paul responds by saying, each person ought to lead the life to which God has assigned and called him or her. You can see that in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 17. And we can do this because God graciously gifts us. He enables us by His Spirit to glorify Him. So, not only is sex in marriage good and holy, but God has given married people the good gift of sex to resist the temptation to sexual immorality. And so, what Paul does is he continues to expound what he says in 1 Corinthians 6.20. You are not your own, he says. You were bought with a price. So, glorify God with your body. And in this text, we can see how Paul intends for married Christians to do that, to pursue self-controlled lives of sexual purity. Next week, Lord willing, we will see what he says to singles or unmarried people on how they can do the same thing, pursue self-controlled lives 
in sexual purity. But here's what we can learn from this passage. We will see, number one, that sex in marriage is spiritually good. Number two, sex in marriage is a mutual obligation. Number three, sex in marriage is a guard against sin and Satan. And then finally, number four, we will consider how to apply these truths to our own marriages. So you can track along with that outline. But first, let's think about that first point. Look at verse one. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, up to this point, Paul has been addressing things that he had heard, you remember, from Chloe's people, 1 Corinthians 1, 11. And now he turns to respond to the questions that they had asked him in a letter. These are matters about which you wrote, says Paul. We see that phrase repeated in chapter 7, verse 25, chapter 8, verse 1, chapter 12, verse 1, and 16, verse 1. These are Paul's responses to specific things, and therefore what follows in this verse is something that the Corinthians talked about. This is a Corinthian saying, and that's why the translators have put it in quotes. There were some who were saying that it was spiritually good to abstain from sexual relations in marriage. Now, it's important to bear in mind the context. All the way from chapter 5, Paul's concern is that the Corinthians flee not from sex, but from sexual immorality. God is not against sex, but for sex. His wise design for sexual expression is between one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage. Anything outside of that is unlawful, immoral, unhelpful, enslaving, unwise, unloving, and unholy. And to tolerate ongoing sexual sin in the congregation is sheer arrogance. Because to embrace sexual sin is to reject God's wisdom. It is to reject the very wisdom that saved us in Christ and turn to our own. Instead, believers who have had their eyes open to see the wisdom of God in Christ ought to rightly judge what is sexually sinful through the lens of Scripture. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18, Paul says, flee sexual immorality. This is similar to what he says in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 to 5. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That is God's will for all of us, for every believer. But what is being stated here as good or spiritually good in chapter 7, verse 1, is the abstinence of sex in marriage. And Paul sharply counters that statement. Look at verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, the Greek text simply says because of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. He doesn't say because of the temptation to sexual immorality, you should get married. No, he says because of this reason, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. That word should have is a relational word and it is referring to sex in marriage. In other words, Paul says, no, it's not spiritually good for you to do that. Instead, if you're a married person, this is how you flee sexual immorality and glorify God with your body. This is spiritually good for you. You should have sex with your wife. You should have sex with your husband. This is a command. And just like any other command, our response as Christians 
ought to be the obedience of faith. Why? Because you were bought with a price. You were bought with a price, beloved. You were redeemed by the blood of your Savior. To trust in Him and obey Him is Christian worship. Now, if you're still unclear whether this is talking about sex in marriage, the next two verses spell it out. And this brings us to our second point. Sex in marriage is a mutual obligation. Now, as we read the next couple of verses, husbands, I don't want you to think, well, my wife needs to hear this. No, you need to hear what the Spirit of Christ is saying to you. Wives, when you hear this, I don't want you to think, my husband needs to hear this. No, you need to hear what the Spirit of Christ is saying to you. So listen carefully and listen well. Listen with the ears of faith. Look at verse 3. The husband should give. Notice that command language. That's an imperative. Should give. He should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. Did you see that word? Rights. This is very important to Paul's argument. Friends, sex in marriage is not optional. It is an obligation. It is a marital duty that husbands and wives ought to render one to another. And beloved, it is an obligation of Christian love within the covenant of marriage. In Ephesians 5, verse 25, the Holy Spirit commands husbands in this way. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Marriage is meant to be a parable of God's covenant-keeping love. It is a picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. And just as Christ loved his bride, the church, and laid down his life for her, husbands are to love their wives in this way. They must deny themselves and love their wives. Why should we do this? Because we, though unworthy, undeserving, and unloving, have been loved by Christ and have been saved by Him. We belong to Him. And husbands who have been captured by the saving love of Jesus are enabled by the power of His Spirit to seek the good of their wives, and that includes meeting their sexual needs. This is our Christian duty that flows from a heart that is captivated with the Lord. Look at the text. He, the husband, is to give to her what is due to her as a wife. And likewise, the wife to the husband. They have equal rights in this matter. A concept that would have been, that, that would have been quite alien to Corinthian society. Paul says, husbands, give your wife all the affection, physical, emotional. Give her all the affection that you owe her. Wives, Give your husbands all the affection that you owe him. Now, why is it that husbands are called to give their bodies to their wives in sexual love? And why is it that wives are called to give their bodies to their husbands? Well, look at the next verse, verse 4. Here's the reason. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Well, what does this mean? Remember, we're talking about sex in marriage. And this means that if you're married, your body belongs to your husband. If you're married, your body belongs to your wife. This is why you have rights over each other. And beloved, in marriage, this is a beautiful thing. 
A husband and a wife ought to know and bear this in mind always, that I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. This is a beautiful thing. Remember, sex is not dirty. Sex is beautiful and wonderful. God created sex and He made it for pleasure and procreation in marriage. Sex is God's gift to the married and it is a sign of His goodness. It is the most intimate physical act between a husband and a wife and God has designed it to take place in the safety and the security of covenant love where a man and his wife can be naked and unashamed. Sex is much more than just a physical act. It is profoundly and deeply relational. Sex is that divinely ordained glue that makes two people one. Friends, it is God who joins a husband and a wife. It is He who makes two people one. God designed sexual union to irreversibly bind a couple together. Jesus said so Himself in Matthew 19 verse 6. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Husbands, because God has joined you to your wife... He has given her authority over your body. Wives, because God has joined you to your husband, He has given him authority over your body. This is the Lord's doing. And therefore, it is right, it is biblical, it is godly for your wife to expect that you will fulfill her needs. Just as it is right, For your wife to expect that you will love her with a Christ-like love and spiritually lead her and cherish her and provide for her and protect her. And it works both ways. It works both ways. He has authority over your body when it comes to sexual expectations. That's not my opinion. That's what the text says. Now, singles... If you're pursuing marriage, this is another reason why it matters who you marry. Make sure that the one who you will marry is Christ-like because he will have authority over your body. Brothers and sisters, if God has given you these obligations towards one another, you ought to realize this. You sin against God and you sin against your spouse when you disobey this command to give yourselves sexually to each other. I'm talking about husbands and wives. In fact, when Paul says a man should have sex with his wife and a wife should have sex with her husband, he means that this should be frequent and regular. To abstain from sex in marriage ought to be occasional and rare. And this brings us to our third point. Sex in marriage is a guard against sin and Satan. Look at the next verse, verse 5. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. The word deprive is the same word that is translated as defraud in 1 Corinthians 6, 8. But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Brothers, when you fail in this obligation, you are defrauding your wife. When you fail to satisfy her needs, when you withhold physical affection, you are cheating your wife of what rightly belongs to her. Wives, when you withhold sex from your husbands, the Holy Spirit says you are depriving your husbands of the gift that God has given him in you. 
Now, wives, you should know that a Christ-like husband ought to delight in his God-given bride. You remember that passage that Joseph read for us from Proverbs 5? When Solomon tells his son to flee from sexual immorality, he tells his son, if you're walking in the fear of the Lord, if you desire the path of wisdom, well, what should you do? Proverbs 5.15, drink water from your own cistern. Proverbs 5.18, rejoice in the wife of your youth. Proverbs 5.19-20, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? Wives, if your husband is fighting sexual immorality, then he should rightly be pursuing you sexually. Don't deprive him. Don't deprive her. Husbands and wives should not deprive one another except, perhaps, by agreement, for a limited time. So many qualifications. It almost sounds hypothetical. And the point is that, that this ought to be very rare and should always involve mutual consent. So that means you need to discuss this and come to an agreement. Now, why do this? Why set aside a good gift God has given you for your spiritual flourishing? Answer, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Now, the way you ought to understand this is similar to the way we understand fasting. When we fast, we set aside a good thing God has given us, food, food that we should receive with thanksgiving. We take a legitimate, necessary, and good thing and set it aside in order to focus on the Lord for a time of prayer and Bible reading and study. This is a way of saying, Lord, as good and wonderful as your gifts are, you are more delightful and you are more to be desired than your gifts. But then here's what the Lord wants us to do. Get back quickly to obeying His commands, but then come together again, the text says, meaning resume regular and frequent sex. And here's the reason why so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. A husband and a wife who think that they can neglect their God-ordained means of grace in sex and battle sexual immorality on their own, in their own strength, are being foolish and disobedient. You see, sex in marriage is a help, a guard against sin, a guard against the evil one. When you say no to the world and the flesh and the devil by delighting in what God has given you, temptation loses its power. And we can resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist him by walking in the Spirit, by obeying this command. Don't deprive one another. Don't wait to the point that your spouse feels sexually frustrated, susceptible to temptation. That's not loving, that's cruel. Now, friends, it's very important for us to remember that this passage doesn't teach us everything that we need to know about Christian marriage. There are several other passages like Genesis 2, 22 to 25, or Ephesians 5, 22 to 23, or Colossians 3, 18 to 19, or 1 Peter 3, 1 to 7. All these passages instruct us about how husbands and wives ought to relate to one another in a way that honors Christ. 
But nevertheless, if you believe in the gospel, if you understand marriage to be a picture of the love between Christ and the church, then sex in marriage is something that we must give attention to if we are going to glorify God with our bodies. So husbands and wives, how should you apply these truths in your marriage? Let's think about point number four, application. And I'd like to talk about five points. Number one, obey this command in faith so that you can truly love each other with a Christ-like love. Do you remember what 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31 tells us? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And that means you ought to have sex to the glory of God. Now, how do you make much of God when you have sex? Number one, believe that sex is holy and it is to be celebrated and enjoyed in the covenant of marriage. Trust God's word that says that. Hebrews 13 verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Number two, give God thanks every day for your spouse and for the good gift of sex. Number three, give God thanks for sex as a means of His grace to help you fight sexual immorality. Thank the Lord for His kindness and His compassion to you. And number four, this is the most important one. You need to believe that you cannot obey this command in a way that glorifies God without the Lord's help. Without the Lord's help. Now, at the beginning of the sermon, I said that this is a command, and like every other command, our response ought to be the obedience of faith, not moralistic obedience or cultural obedience, but Christian obedience, the obedience of faith. Now, that may sound strange to some of you. Typically, when we think of commands that we must obey, commands that require us to trust in the finished work of Christ so that His Spirit can help us, can help us overcome sin and pursue obedience. We usually think of commands that require us to say no to sin and yes to holiness. And we think that sex does not fall into that category because that's what we want to do anyway. That's what we want naturally. But beloved, we should remember that we are sinners saved by grace. Whatever does not proceed from faith, from a heart that is trusting in the finished work of Jesus, is sinful. Without faith in Christ, we cannot have sex in a way that is pleasing to God. The natural approach to sex in marriage is sinful because we only think of what we want. We see self, we see sex as self-gratification. It's all about us. Our sinful culture has discipled us to objectify women and to use them as a means of gratification. Brothers, this should not be the case with our wives. That should not be our heart attitude. But here's another thing that sinful culture has taught us so well. Culture has discipled us to separate sex from covenant love. But remember this, the wisdom of the cross brings those two things together in Christ because to be loved by Him is to be united to Him in spirit. Husbands and wives, look to what Christ has accomplished for you. Look to the cross where Christ the bridegroom 
denied himself, made himself of no reputation, and sacrificed himself in order to free us from the power of sin. He did this so that being secure in his love, we can deny ourselves for the spiritual good and satisfaction of our spouses. That's how you have sex to the glory of God. Now, if you're not a Christian, I wonder what you make of all of this. Perhaps you're wondering, why does the God of the Bible say so much about sex? Well, he says so much because he designed it. And he designed it for his glory. He has authority over us in every way, and we owe him our worship. When God created the first man and woman, he married them and he gave them the good gift of sex. But instead of using this good gift according to God's design and his glorious purposes, one of which was to point mankind to the greatness of his covenant love, we rebelled against God and decided to use sex selfishly for our own glory. Mankind has turned to fornication and masturbation and adultery and homosexuality and pornography and every other kind of sexual deviancy and abuse. And because we have turned to our own wisdom and pursue our own pleasure to our destruction, God stands over us in holy judgment. You see, when we pursue sex as we see fit, we might think we're pursuing the joys of sexual pleasure, but we're really like a drug addict pursuing our own destruction. But despite our rebellion, this God sent His Son Jesus to offer His own body as a sacrifice for our sins. He took the punishment that was due us so that we could be forgiven of all our sins, even our sexual sins. Jesus did this for His people, for all who would turn from their sin and put their trust in Him. He rose again on the third day to give us new hearts that desire to pursue His wisdom in His Word, that we might glorify Him, make much of Him, and display His saving love in our marriages. And friends, this is why we can't do any of these things without trusting in Jesus and relying on His power. Friend, if you don't know Christ, I want to invite you to taste and see that He is good. Repent of your sins and put your trust in Jesus and you will know this sin-conquering power that we've been talking about. You will know His love and you will be able to truly love others, including your spouse, if God has given you one. You see, without faith in Christ, it is impossible to please God and without faith in Christ, we cannot truly love our spouses. Point number two under application. Be committed to the ministry of sexually satisfying one another. Be committed. If God has given husbands and wives sex as a means of His grace to help you, beloved, to help you pursue purity, and He has... This is His will for you if you're married. Then give yourselves to each other frequently, regularly, passionately, and zealously. This is for your spiritual good. It is for your faithfulness. It is for your holiness. It is for your endurance. A healthy sex life in marriage is a good indicator of how you're doing spiritually. Glorify God with your bodies. You know, for some of you, this means that you need to plan for this. You need to schedule sex amidst your busy lives. If God requires it of you to bless one another in order for you to pursue purity in marriage for the sake of His glory, then it needs to be a spiritual discipline, just like prayer and discipleship. Remember that. And if you need help, reach out to a mature, godly couple in the church to hold you accountable to this in your marriage. Number three, 
Be a servant. This is very important. No husband should read verses 3 and 4 and demand sex from his wife or force himself upon her. Read the text. The husband should give to his wife, not take. That is not Christ-like love. Any spouse who seeks their own satisfaction, their own gratification, their own climax within, without taking into consideration the needs of their spouse is sinning against Christ and sinning against your spouse. You are being selfish. And that means, husbands, you need to be mindful of her needs. What satisfies her? Wives, you need to be mindful of your husband's needs. You see, what Paul says to the Philippians applies to your sex lives as well. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others, including your spouses, more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Philippians 2, 3 to 5. Be a servant. Husbands and wives, this means you need to regularly and honestly talk with each other about what your needs are and how you can satisfy each other. Husbands, study your wives. Wives, study your husbands. Beloved, every time you have sex, you are being given an opportunity to put to death your own selfish desires by the Spirit and serve each other in faith and love. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5, love does not insist on its own way. If you have been having sex with your spouse and only one of you has been having their needs met, then the offending, selfish spouse needs to repent. You need to repent. Repent. Ask Christ to cleanse you of your sin, of self-centeredness. Ask your spouse for forgiveness. And don't stop there. No, true repentance bears the good fruit of righteousness. If you have been defrauding your spouse, then begin with God's help to serve them in love. Number four, be a student of the Word of Christ. Beloved, without regularly meditating on the gospel, you won't be able to kill your selfishness. You won't be able to pursue a godly sex life in your marriage. Great sex begins with the pursuit of godliness. It begins long before you get to the bedroom. Husbands, as you grow in godliness and are transformed into Christ-likeness, the duty that your wife has towards you will become a delight for her. Wives, as you grow in Christ-likeness, the duty that your husband has towards you will become a delight for him. You see, godliness doesn't kill sex. It makes it a whole lot better. So husbands, are you growing in Christ-likeness? Wives, are you growing in Christ-likeness? While you should do this out of a love for Christ, Scripture makes it clear that when you do this, you gain as a result. God is glorified, and He blesses you with joy and pleasure through your spouses. Ephesians 5.28, he who loves his wife loves himself. You know, our wives can tell, and I'm talking to the men here, our wives can tell when we are being sweet just for the sex. 
If you have been a selfish, ungodly jerk the whole day, then you have divorced covenant love from sex. Brothers, that's not how it works. Repent of your worldliness. Ask Jesus for his help to be a loving husband always and not just when you want sex. The same goes for wives. If you are belittling him, disrespecting him, nagging him, scolding him, don't be surprised if he's finding it hard to be physically affectionate. Number five, watch out for temptations. Watch out for temptations. And I want to say three things here. One, you can be tempted by sin, but you can also be tempted to neglect this aspect of your marriage because of other good things. Don't give Satan a foothold in your marriages. Your job, your children, your friends, your hobbies are all blessings in your life, but if your marriage bed is going to remain undefiled, and if the gospel is going to shine brightly through your marriages, you need to prioritize and make time for intimacy in your marriages. And no doubt this can be hard, but God calls us to this, beloved. This is non-negotiable because it is a command for your holiness, for the holiness of your spouse and for God's glory. Be careful not to deprive one another intentionally or unintentionally. Remember that this is about you living a self-controlled, married life in the Spirit for the glory of God. Now, there may be several legitimate reasons why a husband and wife cannot have sex. There may be times when that may not be possible. A difficult pregnancy, a debilitating illness, travel, tiredness because of caring for young children. But generally, abstinence in marriage ought to be rare. Or to use Paul's words, by agreement for a limited time, for a focused time of prayer and devotion. So keep that in mind always. Number two, remember that this command is given to us because of sexual immorality. God knows what you need. Let me say that again. God knows what we need. In verse 5, when Paul says you need to have mutual consent if you're going to abstain, and that too it needs to be for a time and agreed upon time, and then come together again, return to the normal pattern of sexual relations, what's the reason? Does it say, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of sex? No, it says, because of your lack of self-control. Isn't that interesting? Self-control, that's the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.23, self-control in marriage is cultivated by having frequent sex. Wives, when your husbands express their needs and frequency, you should not view that as a lack of self-control. When a wife expresses her needs, husbands, don't look at that and see that as a lack of self-control. As husbands and wives trust in Christ, kill their selfish desires and serve one another sexually, the Spirit produces in you the fruit of self-control to say no to sexual sin. And then finally, number three, beloved, have a high view of God's design for your marriage and holiness and a low view of yourselves. You cannot do this on your own. And that means if God says you need this, you might need to think twice before you leave your wife and go overseas and find work. Just think about that. It is better to be poor and to have a Christ-exalting marriage than to have a better lifestyle and fall into sexual immorality. And if you still think, well, 
That'll never happen to me. Watch out. Proverbs 16, verse 18, pride grows before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Remember when the text says that your wife has authority over your body, that includes your mind. A Christ-exalting marriage is one where both spouses remain faithful to each other even in their thoughts. And you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 28, to lust in your heart is to commit the act of adultery. God knows what you need. He knows what we need better than we do. Beloved, I hope this passage has helped you see how dependent we are on the grace of God in Jesus for pursuing sexual purity and love in our marriages. You know, if this has been a problem area for you, go home this evening, pray with your spouses, and talk to each other about how you can make much of Jesus in your marriages by serving each other. Reach out to your pastors if you need counsel, and we will be glad to speak to you. If you need some helpful resources, we've kept a few out at that table at the back. You're welcome to take those. Uh, speak to me or one of the other pastors if you'd like to know which one would be most helpful for your situation. Let us help you. Let us serve you. Husbands, you can only serve your wives in this way if you love Christ more than you love your wife. And wives, you can only serve your husbands in this way if you love Christ more than your husband. A Christian marriage is meant to be a walking, talking demonstration of the saving, transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So our marriages and our sex lives are fundamentally not about us, but about glorifying Him. Christ's saving love will be displayed to the world as selfish men and women set aside our own needs and our own desires so that we can pursue the good of our spouses. So look to Jesus and His sanctifying power. Flee sexual immorality. Delight in the spouse that God has given you. And glorify God in your bodies. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Lord, we pray that we would abide in our Savior's love. And may the power of Your Spirit, the same power that freed us from our sin and raised Jesus from the dead, be manifest in our marriages, even in our bedrooms, that we might glorify You with our bodies. Oh, what a gift of grace is Jesus our Redeemer. Lord, transform us into the likeness of His image. In His name we pray. Amen.